Hi, everyone. Hey, squad. I always want to say, how's everybody doing? Because Brittany and I at this point have been chatting for like 10 minutes. So we've already checked on each other, kind of. So I like what? It's like, so how are you guys? How are you guys? No one ever tells us. No, please don't tell us. I'm sorry. <laughs> like, not. it's not that like we don't care. It's just that I'm personally a horrible pen pal. So I probably won't respond. <laughs> Do you have juicy gossip? Did Karen in accounting piss you off? Text me. I want to hear about it. That would be kind of. I love petty drama. Yeah, if you have petty drama from your office or like friend groups, just maybe we'll read it out loud and we'll just change everyone's names and we'll obviously not tell anybody. Oh my God, that sounds amazing. One time on Bitch Sesh, um, which is a Real Housewives Breakdown podcast, Bravo Breakdown podcast, they did that apparently because they're moms. So one of them, there was like a, a fight over like something to do with the PTA or whatever. And there was like this massive email fight and it was hilarious. <laughs> and they like did a dramatic reading of it. <laughs> Someone I know um, does football boosters in their child's school, and she tells me, like, the funniest shit. Like, there is so much drama. People are, like, constantly pissed at each other. There's, like, power struggles. It's all super immature and makes me laugh that I used to think adults had it all together. Oh, my God. That's the scariest part about being an adult. Not to do the millennial adulting, but, like, no, I think the most confounding and disturbing part about growing up has been finding out that, like, Adults don't really know anything. You know what I mean? Like a lot of them. I don't know shit. No, I know. Like I do, but I don't. You know what I mean? Like I I don't know what's happening. (laughs) Literally, because until recently I was a child. (laughs) I think I was still a child yesterday. I might still be a child. The things I, the way I think sometimes I'm like, this is so immature. Oh, my God. I was in a therapy session and my therapist was like, you know, you almost have a childlike concern about, quote unquote, getting in trouble. And (gasps) I was like, oh, Brittany, what? We have that same concern. And I Googled it recently. Oh, my God. It's like like a fear of getting in trouble. Like, I am convinced someday at my job, they're going to take me into someone's office and tell me all the bad things I've done. And I'm going to be like, I'm so sorry. One of my biggest goals in life is to give less of a fuck. Especially in general. I want to start. I want to have the confidence that the stupid people that have to that have had the opportunity to tell me what to do in the past. And they were stupid. And I knew that. And I just let them walk around acting smarter than me. I want that confidence. Where is my confidence? Where is my unbridled gall? Is it confidence or delusion? Where do those two meet? Where that is the problem. I'm like, where do they meet? Because I often see people who are like, who display too much confidence as delusional. Like, I really do. It's, I'm, I'm a terrible person because I will, lit- someone will compliment themselves and it's slightly, it's like reasonable, but I will literally sit there and go, wow, that was just like a lot. Like, <laughs> oh. And it's hard because I do think we should take pride in ourselves. But at the same time, sometimes people are like, Ugh, I'm so good at this. And they've, pissed me off in that area and I'm like no you're not well I guess we'll get into it um so everyone we're gonna be talking about well this is uh Elite Squad Pod 16th episode woohoo and we're talking about Lauren Rose for you of course as usual season one episode 15 and it's called Entitled so once again my theory at least is that 
they give us a tough episode. And I know we we had a little fun with last episode, but ultimately it was a tough episode. That was a hard and episode. It was hard. The the like I've been trying to like I posted one thing yesterday on our uh, story that was kind of funny, but like I I was struggling to post other things. So I'm like, I don't want to make fun of like any of the victims in this because even yeah. though they're not they're not real victims, but like there are people out there whose stories like mirror them. And it's easier when right. it's like something that's like clearly Hollywood dramatized. Exactly. It's like we're more making obviously making fun of like more of the writing, but still. So this one is kind of because we don't really know what happened. It's still it's kind of pure funny. <laughs> it is. Is there any opening notes on this? Like, well, one thing, it's kind of a family reunion. Oh, yeah. Lander, well, Brittany, let me know if this is a cross-over episode. This is their first crossover, which we know NBC to this day loves to do that. But yes, this is a crossover episode we're covering entitled on Law & Order SVU. If we had watched it that night, uh, February 18th, 2000, uh, right after would have been an episode of Law & Order proper, which would have ended the story which I did not know when I first watched this episode and I was really confused me either I didn't know until we until we discussed it just moments ago I was like oh good because I have so many questions so this episode was directed by Edwin Sharon and I was like Ed Sheeran Ed Sheeran directed this episode <laughs> no his name's Edwin Sharon but I'm like so Ed oh I just want to make a podcaster's note I just took a shitload of dayquil so if I sound a little rough I'm really sorry Oh, and if I sound rough, it's just because allergies and also I drink a lot of caffeine. Um, and I had chocolate before this, which was a bad idea. I don't know why I did that. Chocolate makes your throat more mucusy. Ugh, we did everything wrong, um, except for I do have my <laughs> Red Bull. <laughs> Opening scene, uh, two mounted patrol cops on horses, which is what mounted patrol is. They're walking through Central Park. It's one of those areas with a bridge. But they're chit-chatting about buying and selling things on eBay, which I thought was cute. Specifically, George Foreman Grills, which Ugh. what a what a blast from the past! What a time to be alive! This very moment, <laughs> I know. Uh, this is like such a good time to be alive. Like George Foreman Grills, eBay. Well, I I'm saying that, and as I as they approach a parked car and yell "Rise and Shine, Lovebirds," and realize that the driver has had his bl- brains fucking blown out all over this dashboard. It's very graphic, actually. You could see. I don't like this word. Chunks of brain. Well, ch- okay, that's much better. I was going to say bits, but they were the chunks. Bits. They were chunks of brain matter in human flesh all over this car. I love that. I was like, this was such a great time to be alive, except for the guy who was there who was dead. The cops don't seem too disturbed. They're like, they're like, hey, rise and shine, lovebirds. And then they poke their head in and see what I have to say is probably the goriest crime scene we've seen thus far in our, what, 15, 16 episodes. And they're like, oh, uh-oh. They make a comment. Uh, one of the cops says, they didn't take the stereo, but they took the back of his head and pants off. I'd be like, holy fucking shit. Right. No, we'd be like. Hur, hur, hur. Detective Porter's just in the bush going. Hur, hur, hur. Maybe they're hired as mounted police officers because they're really chill and their really chill vibes mesh well with the horses. That's a good. Yeah, because they didn't panic at all. <laughs> no, they're literally like, oh. Huh. They had time for a joke. Parting notes, that's kind of all this is. This person has also been shot in the genitals, so, you know, two for two on that. Oh, actually, so we are, is this episode 15? Yes. So, 
One fifth of our episodes so far have begun with a dead male in a car with something related to his junk. Yeah. We had victim from episode one, the victim from what, two episodes ago? Yes, two episodes ago because it was, yeah, Judge, uh, I can't remember his name, Stracciatella, um, Judge Mozzarella. Barella. And then Barella. <laughs> <laughs> dun dun. Well, not really a dun dun. It's more of a later uh, because we're still at Central Park, still where the car is. CSI and BNS have arrived. Uh, Bezda and Stabler are interviewing a woman and her kids who heard the gunshots from the. It's like. It's like witnesses from across the street. There's like various witnesses on the green across the street. And one of them is a woman and her kids. And she said that this shot sounded like high pitched popping. And then this bro runs over and he's like, can I go? And they're like, oh, hi. And apparently he's some finance bro. He works at Wall Street. He's like, you guys need to know it was more of a boom. And Stabler's like writing this down and glaring at him like, thanks. And then they ask, he's like, why didn't you call the police? The guy's like, and I kind of understood this, although it has nothing to do with anything. But he's like, sirens, screaming, alarms, more sirens because I'd be on the phone half my life. And I'm like, that's true. (laughs) He has a point. Yeah, like, understandable. I probably wouldn't have called. Well, I don't know. I've never really heard gunshots. So, no, I have. But, like, far away. I hear them. Not frequently, but I hear them occasionally. But I live in New Hampshire. So, right. Everyone has a gun. I was hearkening back to my childhood when I actually, in fact, did hear them in the woods during deer season. I kid you not, during deer. I, I'm acting like no one else knows what this is like, but it feels so far from me. I'm used to dealing with this. Everything that's happening this episode is what I deal with now. <laughs> so, done, done. We're back at the bullpen. The victim is Dean Woodruff. He's 35. He's divorced. Uh, and his kids and his ex-wife live upstate. He sells fitness equipment to, like, rich people. Yes. They recovered one slug from a 44, uh, which makes Munch randomly comment that the shooter is either a wacko or insecure because it's amateur and messy. I was like, okay. One of their cute little things that they're doing to like set up what's going on is that they keep mentioning how crazy it is that whoever did this used a 44 Magnum, but I'm pretty sure a 44 has been used like at least three other times. I looked up a 44 and they don't look mm, that much bigger than a typical handgun. I'm not a gun expert, so what the fuck do I know? It's like an old school looking revolver, you know? So I guess, yes. I, again, same here. I'm not a gun expert. I'm like, isn't that what everyone uses? A 44, you know? But they're all like, Ugh, 44, that's wild. After he said it's amateur and messy, I wanted to point out that if anyone besides Munchen said that, he would have been like, great job solving the crime. I guess we can all go home now. Exactly. He says so much stupid shit in this episode that has nothing to do with literally. I. It's another episode where people are saying things that don't really have anything to do with anything at all. I will also note in this scene, it's everyone is in the squ- squad room gathered around like our people, the people we know, and then background actors. And they are all fucking hilarious in the scene. If you watch any one of them, there's this one guy who's like taking notes and then like looking around and then back to his notes. Like he's like, yes, yes, that was a point that I will write down. I will try to take a video for the Instagram. But I was like watching this one guy and I'm like, what are you doing? Uh, that was like in Wanderbust because I remember that I first noticed those people in Wanderbust and they were it looked they were so far away from the squad, though, that it looked like they were all just watching them like kind of in a case study. Like, look at them go. Look at the squad go. They're doing a good job. They are truly an elite squad. But like now they've allowed them to be closer and like actually kind of participate, but not, never speak. Don't never. talk. 
They're like, <laughs> don't, don't talk. Don't talk. Shh, you're nodding too loud. Now, this is very important. Olivia mentions that this crime scene is a real grope spot. And Stabler goes, yeah, it's really romantic. Teenagers, honeymooners, co-workers. And then he stares at Olivia. I was like, what? Detective Porter, I don't know what I was doing the four times I watched this scene. Oh my God. But I didn't notice. Every single, I'm, I'm going to send, all right, another one I'll post on the Instagram. But I will send you a video of this later. It is intense. He goes, yeah, teenagers, honeymooners, co-workers. He Ugh. stares at Olivia. She turns and looks at him. Maybe he was making a dig about Cassidy, but I, no, that's wrong. It's about her. Why did they not? Oh, my God. So much to unpack here. Why? He's so horny. For 20, for fuck's sake, 23 years. And they never just decided to make this happen sooner. Like, I I know know. they're alluding to it, but like, come on. Ugh. Wasted time. After this, this thing happens. uh, Munch says, maybe he was alone. And Olivia goes, yeah, maybe the force of the gun blew his pants off. And she said it kind of like that. Like, are you fucking kidding me? And Munch suggests that maybe Dean was there masturbating and like, somebody blew his head off while that was happening um so if nothing else happened i think they all just kind of craig it's like go talk to like his acquaintances and work people and like go talk to people so dun dun we head over to the me's office and she basically gives us nothing she's so scary she's like yeah i'm pretty sure the death was due to the gunshot to the back of the head and stabler's like well his pants were down she's like yes yes there was semen don't get too excited yeah she says it could have been I wrote it down. Um, She said it could be an erotic release or part of the body's natural death reflex. I've heard of peeing and pooping yourself while dead. I almost said drunk, but that too. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Freudian slip. Oh, my. Um, (laughs) Oh, my. Paige, don't talk about later tonight. Um, (laughs) No, but I've never heard of like anyone having an erotic release as part of the body's natural death reflex. Well, besides like autoerotic asphyxiation, but I thought that had to be specific to choking. Not a doctor. I was like, oh, so maybe he was like mid doing that and then he got shot in the head, but he wasn't. Uh, not that we know. Not that we know of. Again, not that we know of. Dun dun. So now we're at Dean Woodruff's office, but also it's a gym. Unclear, but he sells gym equipment apparently at a gym. And this chipper fit woman approaches, I'm calling them munchies, because we had munchity. Good one. Oh, thank you. Oh, my God. Mostly because I'm lazy and I don't want to write Munch and Jeffries 10,000 times. We were on the same wavelength and I was trying to think of one for them. And the one I came up with was like drunch or something. (laughs) (laughs) This chipper lady approaches munchies and she's like, it's never too late to start that New Year's resolution. And Munch is like, I already work out. I just work different muscles. What? Ew. I thought ew. I also thought it was kind of rude of her to just walk up to two people and be like, <laughs> like, take a look at them and go, it's never too late. So they reveal themselves as officers and she realizes they're here about Dean. So we cut to them talking to the boss, maybe. He literally, this guy is leading them into, I guess, Dean's office. And he goes, Dean was more faithful than my wife. He's like obsessed with Dean. He's like, he's a great employee. He came in early, took short lunches, stayed late, checked in often when he was out on the road, made his quota. He was well-liked. I'm like, oh my God, kiss him already. 
Uh, yeah, and he was. He said once he made a once he made a deal at a club or a gym, they only want to deal with him. And I'm like, I love these random jobs they give these people. I know. They all sound fake as fuck. Yeah. Once he sold an elliptical to a rich lady in Tribeca, they only ever wanted to buy ellipticals from him. How often did they need to buy ellipticals? They ask for Dean's personal client list, and this guy is helpful, and he runs off to get it. <laughs> right after he does, <laughs> from behind them, we hear, <laughs> There is the most stereotypical blonde lady in, like, a fuzzy pink sweater just sitting. I swear that she was kind of, like, looking at them and, like, crying, like, <laughs> Exactly. It's like she had one eye open, like from behind her eyes, and she's like, "I'm ah, ah, oh, sorry, am I being too loud?" So Jeffries approaches her, and the woman's like, "You just never think this will happen to someone you know." I guess. Jeffries, right before that, she walks up to her. She goes, "Excuse me, this is upsetting." <laughs> she's <laughs> she's a fire sign. <laughs> she's not used to that kind of shit. It was like fifty percent a question and fifty percent a statement. <laughs> is upsetting this is upsetting so she tells jeffries that i guess all the employees are a really close-knit group but dean was special and so then jeffries is like oh well special how and she's like uh, uh. well i just meant he was like popular at the office we always go out for drinks at this pretentious fucking place called la bar so now we go to la bar Ugh, we meet this fucking asshole this female bartender you know how the joke about law and order svu is that all the witnesses never want to talk to the cops and seem lightly annoyed this bitch is full-blown annoyed that these cops deign ask her anything about their murder investigation she's like oh it is wild she's somewhere between surly teenager and surly every you know like bartender trope like it's crazy the way she's just pissy with them but she's also very quiet, so she's, like, quietly angry. She's like, oh, did Dean skip out on his alimony payments? Let me guess. He either knocked up the wrong person or skipped out on alimony payments. Lady, how do you know so much? Uh, so they never say this, but I'm 100% certain that Dean had some sort of dalliance with this woman and then dumped her, and she's real pissed about it and does not yeah. want to help solve his murder. A munch is like, oh, so Dean must have had a way with women. And the bartender makes some sarcastic comments about, like, how Dean flirts. She goes, he nurses a drink, looks sad, says his heart is breaking, he'll never love again, blah, blah, blah. Works every time. I don't know if that would work on me. If, like, I saw a guy crying and he was just like, <coughs> like, at the bar. Doing what Moira did. <laughs> Staring at me. I'd be like, I'm going to leave that guy alone. Everyone's allowed to express emotion, but I will never, ever, ever accept a drink from somebody who's crying. That's just such bad news. No. What's going on with you? So this stupid bartender, she lights up a cigarette in the middle of the bar, in the middle of work. It must be her bar. And I was like, Jesus, it's such a it's such a gross thing to do that it's just like I would want to do it once just so I could be like, ew, I can't believe I smoked over my steak. There's a lot of smoking in this episode. You know what? I think it's still legal because Carrie smokes a cigarette in a bar with Miranda in a season of Sex in the City. And that's right around this time. She's like, so what happened? And Bunch goes, so he died. And she suddenly, like, drops the surly act. She's like, oh. Well, he was in last night. Nicest guy. So they ask her when, and she goes and looks at her records, and she ran his card at 11.55 p.m. So Munch asks who he left with, and she says, she's back to being unhelpful. She's like, well, all the women who come in here are thin and hungry and tied to their cell phones. They look the same. Could have been any one of them. Thanks, lady. Done, done. So we're at Dean's apartment, right? Yeah, Dean's yes. apartment. This 
it's like his apartment office. His super has just let Jeffries and Munch in and they're looking around Dean's home. The super says that Dean never gave him any problems, except for this is actually a massive problem. So I'm not sure why he's so cavalier about it, except for the Dean would give out copies of his keys to basically every single woman he dated. And the guy goes, and there were lots of women. He subsequently would have to like change the locks every time he would go to shit. How come all these? It's another man slut episode. Andrew Harlan, man slut. Then fucking there were more mad sluts in my memory. This show at this time is not very sex positive. It's very, uh, if you have sex, you will die. It's giving that scene for Mean Girls. Don't have sex. You will die. You will die. You will be caught with your pants down in a car in Central Park, shot dead. So they open up a file cabinet and Jeffries goes, oh, here we go. <laughs> and then in the most unsettling scene in this entire episode. Thank you. Okay. Good. I thought this was wicked fucking weird. And you know, I'm the tchotchke queen over here. They bring out random file folders, manila folders filled with just shit. This is pathological. There's like a folder of matchbooks. There's a folder of napkins from like different hotels. There's seashells. This is weird. And no one seems to think this is really fucking weird. Like he took all these quote-unquote trophies from different times with women this is so weird yeah and how do we even know that like is that what i like how they just you're right they kind of like write it off they're like oh it looks like he was waiting to be audited but it was clearly like little love trinkets because they also find a love note that goes unexplained but i'm like what why did you have seashells it's so weird in a manila folder Maybe because the love note said, my dearest Dean, love is like the tide. Maybe this one broad gave him like a manila folders worth of seashells. But also, I don't know. You throw out crap like that from old relationships. Sure, you might keep the nice jewelry or something, but you don't keep like a napkin from someone you banged 10 months ago. Cocktail napkins, that's dirty. And so are seashells. Dirty. While I'm screaming about how weird this is, Munchies are totally ignoring me. And Munch's phone starts to go off. (laughs) Ha ha, he's old. He can't answer it. So Jeffrey says to answer it for him. And basically, they find out that Moira, the girl from the last, not the bartender, the girl (laughs) from his work, yes, has two gun permits. And one is for a 44. Um, So Munch reaches down and in this pile of fucking nonsense, finds a picture of Dean and Moira. And they're like, mm-hmm. Meanwhile, I'm like, can we talk more about these goddamn shells? Why are there shells? Never mentioned again. What the fuck? The biggest mystery of this episode is that they never bring up his collection of shit ever again. That is pathological. It's weird. If I ever dated a guy and I was like in his home and, you know, snooping through his shit and just found like, organized collections of things from trysts i would be so weirded out it's creepy and gross like do you know how smelly that manila folder full of shells probably was i mean i'm a girl who likes to take shells from the beach and i'm always like have regrets i'm like oh smells like death in my apartment now i found my old like I don't know, like my old jewelry box from when I was nine. I had like tiny little shells from in there. And I know it's kind of sweet. I was grossed out. I was like, ew, these shells are from like 1999. I'm mostly laughing because when I cleaned out my old jewelry box, I found like five toe rings. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, what on earth? (laughs) Toe rings. I am so jealous. I think I had a toe ring. Toe rings. 
I had the stretchy ones, the ones that look like the necklace chokers, but they were for your toes. That's so embarrassing. I had like a sterling silver one with like a little sea turtle on it. I live in New Hampshire. You definitely got it on like a trip to Florida. Yeah. And I was like, ooh, when I wear this toe ring to school, some guy is going to look at it and be like, oh, Brittany's cool. She wears toe rings. And I was like, mm. So done, done. Now we're back at Dean's like gym office thing. <laughs> like whatever. Um, so Moira says she hasn't been to Labar in months ever since Dean broke it off with her. Munch asks her about the gun permits and she's like, well, yeah, I'm from upstate, which I guess would be kind of like being like, yeah, I live in New Hampshire. Yeah, that's how I took it, too. I was like, nah, I know what she means. It's like not that weird. And her father taught her to shoot and she's always carried a gun. But the 44 was just a phase. It's very impractical. And so she sold it a year after she got it. She's got the receipts and everything. So she does not have this gun anymore. Again, she's like, yeah, it's a cannon. So impractical. And I'm like, they're really trying to nail home. They're like, it was a crazy And person. it was the craziest gun you could ever own. Whoever did this is a psycho. <laughs> it's like Cassidy. <laughs> I miss Cassidy. He would have had so too. much fun this episode. He would have been, I would have been making so much fun of him. Dun, dun. We're back at Le Bar. Munchies is there again, and they're asking the surly bartenders if she recognizes Moira from the night, uh, the night in question. But she looks at it and she says it wasn't her. Are the pictures that they show her, are those security fo- photos of like security footage? Because otherwise this conversation makes no sense. Those photos are from the, I thought they were from the Manila folder in Dean's apartment. So they were showing her all these pictures like that Dean had of old girlfriends. So that's what I was thinking at first. And then I thought, this well then what she does next is so strange so basically they're like will you look through these pictures and she goes "Ugh, i'm really busy running a bar in manhattan new york and they're like okay well this is a murder investigation but we can come back later and she goes oh god you people so then she takes the photos starts going through them and going the blonde then me a preppy little anorexic bitch then me is she in the pictures because she kept saying then me because then munch goes were you the one sitting with him that night and then she goes no but like why did she keep saying then me or or am i yanni laureling and i'm gonna have to rewatch this scene because i'm kind of like oh it's like a one another one of those scenes where i'm like i kind of don't know what the fuck's going on why were there photos at a bar moira did say that labar is like kind of dean's hangout so maybe that's why this waitress clearly this waitress knows dean pretty well it, it feels like the script was like it seems like there's a lot in there that they put in and then took out because we we never get an answer to why. Munch, basically, again, he goes, uh, so were you the one hanging out with Dean the night that he went he went dead? And she goes, she was over there at that table for a while with those people. And she points at this couple sitting kind of like behind them. I guess the person that they were looking for wasn't in those photos, but whoever was hanging out with Dean that night was sitting with those people over there. Yeah, which I was like, so is that couple like always there at that same table? That was so weird. Pure chaos. So they're like, okay, thanks, asshole. And that's the last we see of her, thank God. So Munch walks over and he like shoves the picture in their face. And the guy's like, hey, hey, excuse me. And Jeffries shoves him, grabs his shoulders and shoves him down. And I was kind of like, dude. And then she goes, you want to keep your clavicle in one piece? And he was like, yes. He's like, oh, my God, you're scary stop yeah so that was Sagittarian energy right there she's tired of this because she didn't know what the hell the bartender was talking about either she's like what they should have done that to her but whatever they're taking out their anger on this couple 
So they hand the girl, I guess it's a picture of Dean, and they're like, hey, do you know this guy? And who was he hanging out with last night? And then she looks at she goes, oh, yeah, I recognize him. So she called him a Willie, the Willie Loman of fitness equipment, and that he was sitting with one of the Mulroonies. So back at the station, Olivia is talking about the Mulroney family, and she's like, it's a large clan if you include the cousins. But we're not talking about the cousins. So she says of the daughters, Stephanie's the only one left. I'm like, how many siblings were there? And are they all dead? So this was giving the Kennedys to me, like the way they were kind of talking about these people. They were like, it was giving the Kennedys, like how all of them are mysteriously dead. Yes. So Stabler calls Stephanie a wild child, but now she's 33 and runs a socially conscious investment group. Munch jokes about that. Benson and Stabler have now left her several messages. She has yet to respond. And now Briscoe Jr. comes like jogging up. He's like, uh, Craig, and there's some guy in your office and he won't leave. His name is Rumsey. And then Munch is like, Rumsey, former Governor Mulroney's legal aide. Now, at this point in the episode, Cragen starts looking like he needs an antacid, and that's kind of what he looks like for the rest of the episode. Yeah, it's another situation where, like, rich people have come to haunt Craig. There's been a couple episodes where Cragen's almost lost his job, and this is yet another. <laughs> so in Cragen's office, Rumsey tells him he's there as a family friend. Stephanie did witness the attack, and Rumsey wants... I wrote Rumsey. Rumsey wants to help in any way he can. And Cragen's like, well, that's cool. Can we interview her? He's like, no need. Look, I've got her statement right here. And Craigan's like, fucking cool. We still need to talk to her. Rumsey's like, yeah, yeah. Soon as she's ready. He seemed very senile to me. I don't know if it's because, <laughs> because he did. He was like, yeah, sure. Because he just seems like that old man who's like not listening. Like he comes in like to buy insurance and he's like, I brought my social work papers. And they're like, OK, we don't need that. And his name's Rumsey, like, and he's like, I brought her written statement. And they're like, okay, cool. This is a police investigation, so. We need to talk to her. And he's like, look, I know all these people on this wall. <laughs> to, like, of all Cragen's pictures. Craig's yeah. Like, yeah, fucking cool. Um, He's wearing, like, an ascot. I'm like, <laughs> get the fuck out of here. you are? He's just, and it's, like, the former governor. So, basically, this is, like, a rich family that's sort of, like, the Kennedys. So, done, done. BNS, we're on the Mulroney property. Uh, and they're, like, looking around the room and discussing the Mulroney's vast fortune. So, Stabler keeps repeating things that Munch has apparently told him about the Mulroney's. And he says, like, first of all, he goes, Munch says they get 18 cents of every pack of cigarettes sold in the U.S. What? Do they just own all tobacco? They own the cigarettes? <laughs> and while this is happening, Benson's kind of like, oh, what else did Munch tell you? Like, I just picture, like, Stabler sitting there and Munch is like, and then the Mulroneys make 18 cents for every cigarette sold. Yeah, he goes, Munch says when the oldest daughter died, over 2,000 mourners lined up and down Fifth Avenue. And I'm like, what? Why? Was she, like, Paris Hilton? Like, what? Was she, like, Meghan Markle? I think they keep trying to emphasize how beloved this family is, like the Kennedys were, but it doesn't make any sense because we don't understand why people like them so much because they seem fucking terrible. Olivia, I know, Munch wanders over to this like contraption on a desk and he goes, what's this? Benson wanders over and goes, oh, it's a cigar cutter. Oh, it says Winston Churchill on it. I slowly slip it into my bag. Hmm, that perhaps is evidence. This looks like it has fingerprints on it. Enter Regina Mulroney. Guys, we're not being facetious. Her name is spelt like Regina but it is pronounced vagina. Like vagina. Yes, that is in my notes. Rhymes with vagina. She enters 
this conversation, telling them that her father and Winston Churchill were in a bet one night. And her father beat Winston Churchill in a bet. And old Winnie didn't have a habit of carrying cash on him. So he had to give my father the cigar cutter. <laughs> she called him Winnie. How droll. Yeah, how very droll. <laughs> so then she drifts over to the couch and stares out the window. And she goes, every time policemen come over to the house, a family member has died. And it's like, well, yeah, they normally show up with bad news. Right after that, she goes... It's been five years to the day that my son went down in the fog off the Dalmatian coast with the ambassador. I don't know how to begin unpacking. She said three lines and I don't know how to begin unpacking this. They're trying to get to the bottom of this and she's trying to distract them with a series of disturbing, like, details about her family life. Tired as usual of trauma dumping. Benson interjects. She says, well, your daughter was very lucky. And Regina is literally startled. She goes, lucky? Why? (laughs) Stabler's like, that she survived the attack. And she's like, oh, yeah, right. She's the light of my life. She was my miracle child. Yeah, my unplanned miracle child. What is that dark backstory? Stabler's like, oh, she, is she here? Benson, who hates an old rich lady, goes, well, children always come home during a crisis, don't they? And Regina's like, ooh. But apparently she's at a private hospital under sedation. Yeah, she too is in seclusion. How come I didn't realize that when rich people run away from the cops, it's referred to as seclusion? Yeah, and not evading arrest. Instead of calling out sick, I'm going to start telling my work that I'm in seclusion and can't come in today. Dun dun. We're at a fancy upstate hospital. This doctor that Livy and Elliot are talking to, he's like also annoyed with the murder investigation and he doesn't want them to talk to Stephanie because she's in seclusion. (laughs) (laughs) Literally just because she's in seclusion, not for any other reason. So the doctor tells him that Stephanie's been heavily sedated, and they're like, why? And she, he's like, uh, because of the trauma. I would like to be sedated for all my trauma, but I am not rich enough to go into seclusion. And he briefly mentions they treated wounds, and I'm like, what? the wounds are never brought up again. And I'm like, what wounds? Just traumatic. And we see her. Like, dun dun, we cut to a room with her in it, and she looks fine. I think it's weird that literally no one felt like reporting this to the police. Like, like she... She witnessed a guy get shot in the head and groin, and she was like, well, I'm just going to go tell my mom about this. And think about this. She's in his car. He must have taken her there in his car. She would have had to get out of the car. It was dark, I'm guessing. Walk to where there are lights. Uh, I mean, she's rich, so she probably has a cell phone. She would have had to call somebody. Someone would have had to come get her. I'm sure. Hey, I saw... Dean. I keep forgetting his name. Dean's brains everywhere. So I'm sure she's fucking covered in his brains. So someone had to go pick her up. It's weird. Yeah. Her somewhere. It's a whole thing. So we meet Stephanie Mulroney and they tell her they're going to be brief. And she is literally on a fainted couch and a nurse is plumping a pillow behind her. <laughs> it's peak drama. This girl was like they drew eyeballs on like a piece of cardboard like she was just like like, she's gorgeous but like she was so like hello (laughs) she was very good at playing sedated which i can't say is a huge compliment because it shouldn't be that hard but her mother and the lawyer barely let her talk like she's very infantized like by these people um so she tells him that she was at le bar for a drink and she ended up meeting dean there as in like they didn't know each other and they both met up with each other like they oh hi how are you i'm having a rough day oh i'm having a rough day too like that type of meeting. He says that they later left and drove to Central Park and parked and they were talking and facing each other. And Dean made a joke about how like the seats don't go 
far back enough. And Stabler asks what that joke meant. And Rumsey, who's a gross, dirty old whore, was like, it's pretty obvious. Stabler's such a troll. He was like, explain the joke. And then the weather goes. Stephanie said something like, not right now, right, Stephanie? And Stephanie's like, yeah, something like that. And then she claims she leaned over to change the radio station. And Stabler's like, well, what was playing? She's like, I don't know. But then it happened. Stabler asks at what time that was. And she can't remember. So Stabler asks if she can describe the attacker. And Stephanie starts saying it happened so fast. And Olivia has to actually press her. And she's like, he had black rimmed glasses, dark hair, roundish face. And when Olivia asks for more, Rumney chimes in. He's like, medium guy, dark hair, black rimmed glasses. What more do you want? And Stabler's like, well, why didn't you call the police? And Stephanie does that thing where she doesn't answer. And she goes, it was awful. You have no idea how awful it was. Uh, They're sex crimes cops. They have exactly an idea of how awful things can get. And one thing we didn't mention is whenever they would ask her a question in the scene, she would look at Rumney before she answered. Yeah. Oftentimes he would answer for her or her mother would answer for her. Yeah, it was it was weird. It was actually probably like effective like as far as imagery goes just because I was like getting annoyed I'm like oh my god bitch like say something yourself please yes so done done bullpen Benson and Stabler tells Craig and Stephanie's story and also mention how weird Rumsey and Regina were being um basically the same thing we just said Craig asks if Dean and Stephanie had sex Liv says that Stephanie implied no Jeffrey thinks they should get a DNA swab and Craig is like yeah no not gonna happen because the the Mulroney's yeah, and basically, like, she already said she was there, so, like, a DNA swab doesn't, like, really prove anything. So they just dis- start to discuss if perhaps the shooter attacked from outside the car and what outside motives might be. Um, and Jeffrey's like, well, we've got a shitload of angry ex-girlfriends. And Olivia throws out the ex-wife who lives upstate. Um, she's the woman who's been betrayed the most. So Craigan assigns munchies to ballistics and, I think, Benson and Stabler to all these exes. Dun-dun. So we're at the Emmy's office and it's like a male. I don't know who this is, a male Emmy. And he tells Munch and Jeffries that Dean was killed by a bullet called a black talon, which is also referred to as a cop killer. I didn't care to look into this, but I'm assuming it's because it could it's so powerful. It could shoot through bulletproof vests because what else? So I looked them up and the only thing of note that I can say is that they're really fucking big. Yeah. So when you're shot with them, it. I think that's what they were getting at with that really disgusting crime scene at the beginning. Um, they were also used in the murder of Reva Steenkamp by um, Oscar Pistorius. Oh, right, right. So this is a very short scene. They basically find out the bullets are called cop killers. They're huge. And Munch and Jeffries leave. Oh, and they stopped making them in 1994 because the bullets were too recognizable. And they didn't. The, the manufacturers didn't want lawsuits coming back to them. I did see a brief thing about a lawsuit. Uh, against them because of a murder. Maybe that was why. Maybe it was that one. Dun dun. We're about to move into the two most confusing fucking scenes in this entire episode. They don't make any sense. They don't make any sense. So we're with Dean's ex-wife and she's cleaning up some crayon drawings insinuating that there are little children that live in her house And she says the last straw was when a college sophomore came by to return a book. And she kind of sniffs like, yeah, as if. After that, she literally just launches into an explanation about Dean's childhood. And she explains that he started working at the same lumber yard that his dad drove trucks for when he was like 
in his in high school. He would help out after school. And then before long, the kid was running the place. She says the kid. And I'm like, you're talking about some guy I used to fuck. Don't call him the kid. Everything with Dean was transactional. But that was never good enough for the old man. I think that's why Dean chased so many women. What kind of origin story is that? Those three sentences don't make sense together. They all happen one after the next. Like everything I just said was sequential. Everything was a transaction to him. That wasn't enough for his dad. That's why he chased so many women. What? How do each sentence lead into the next? Everything I did was a transaction, but that wasn't enough for my dad. Enough of what? Enough, yeah, enough of what? What happened? Why was Dean cheating on you? And that's everything she responds with. So Stabler and Benson circle back to the college girls part because that's what they care about. And they ask if it was easy for Dean to pick up college girls as a local townie. And the wife says, hard wasn't Dean's problem. Ew. And that there were lots of transactions. I was like, what do these transactions have to do with the, the other transactions? So what we get from that was that Dean was fucking around with co-eds while he was married to his wife, who is the mother of their two young children who are probably around five because there were like finger paintings and like crude drawings in the house. Dean was 35, so I'm only laying out all these details because of this next scene. Oh my god. Dun dun. We're at Barrett University. So being a... <laughs> they, they go over to this college where I wrote Dean was stalking co-eds or may have been a student. <laughs> well, we open up to BNS talking to some woman that we have to assume is like a dean or an admissions, some lady in charge of the school. And she's like, well, we were the first college to regulate intimacy. And Stabler's like, makeout rooms? And he's probably thinking this sounds a lot better than Everglades University. But Olivia's like, hold up, Dean was involved in date rapes? And I'm like, how did we get from these rooms rules to Dean date raping people? And the woman goes, well, that's the problem. <laughs> and then she like, she says that basically Dean was like a Lothario, like a ladies man. And like, that would have been at one point admired, but now it's considered like non-PC. Then she goes, but there are some people who are of a higher caliber, students whose parents are of a higher caliber or more well-known that like to keep these things discreet. And so I'm like, wait, what? So we went from like, you were talking about intimacy rooms. You were talking about like Dean maybe went there and now you're segueing to, we had higher caliber like students here. Olivia, even though the lady has said nothing that makes sense, goes, oh, like Stephanie Mulroney, and she dropped out her sophomore year. Did Dean factor into that? And I'm like, I know that's where this scene is heading, but where did you get that from what this lady was saying? Exactly. There was no, none of this is a clear, like, they're just foraging paths through the woods. There's no path that we're already following. So the woman goes, oh, I don't know that I want to talk about that. It's really not my place. I'm uncomfortable. And then Stabler goes, all right, cut the crap. He literally goes, cut the crap. And I'm like, yeah, please. Thank you. Please. And so he asks flat out what their question should have been from the beginning. Was there a rumor or did you hear about Dean Woodruff and Stephanie Mulroney having a sexual relationship that went awry at one point? And the the headmistress says that Stephanie came to her and cried rape, but that in her opinion, she looked into it and Dean had seduced her and, quote, treated her shabbily. And I'm like, what? So I immediately don't trust this bitch because she was like, listen, Dean was just born in the wrong era. If he if this had happened in a different time, he would have been considered a Lothario instead of like in this PC culture. And I'm like, 
all right, so this guy like came around and messed around with underage girls and you're here being like, oh, Stephanie just got treated shabbily and was mad about it. And honestly, if she was from this prestigious family, couldn't she have gotten Dean in trouble whether at this point, whether or not it actually happened, which I think it did. Well, so this is where I want to know, and we never find out, by the way, so this is just us talking about it rhetorically, because I want to know if Dean was supposed to be a student there, because Dean's 35, Stephanie's 33, so they were around the same age, which would have been like 20 and 22, if she was a sophomore when when this all happened and she dropped out. So it's like, if, if he was a student there, it would have made sense why she went to the dean or whoever the hell this lady was to report it. But if she if he wasn't and he raped her, then why didn't she go to the fucking cops? Yeah, never go through your college. They do not have their best your best interests in mind. They have their best interest in mind. Right. If you are ever assaulted on a campus, don't just go right to the cops. It's like HR. Like if you if something happens at your company, their job is to protect the company. Right. Exactly. The college's job is to protect the college. And I'm saying that like it's okay and it's not. Yeah, so that's my question. It's like, okay, was Dean a student? Not that it really matters, but it's like it kind of does because it's like they they had this like kind of problematic townie who, what, granted, wasn't that much older than them at the time. Because, but then again, like, so he must have been doing this for years because then his wife, whose children are either they're only kids themselves, so he's just been he was up until recently just hanging out in his hometown like trolling for fucking college girls a lot to unpack there i know so it's like dean is this really weird character where he keeps creepy trophies from the women and seduces college girls when he's in his late 20s or early 30s and it's kind of like so what's like the real and and it all turns out to mean nothing and i i also feel like right here it's kind of like, which is it? Is Stephanie either this super entitled person with all this power or was, were the, was the college able to basic, basically be like, oh, you weren't raped. We don't think you were. I'm like, all right, well, if she had all this power and privilege, why didn't she just call Rumsey and ruin this guy's life now? Right. That's a good point. Because it's like, yeah, like they're doing all this now. She's 33. They definitely would have gotten. Are you kidding me? They probably, well, they might have covered it up, but they probably would have gotten him kicked out of. If not the school, because again, unclear if he was a student there or just a well-known Lothario. But they would have gotten him kicked out of Synecdoche or wherever the fuck they were. Saratoga. Saratoga. There you go. I got so many S's in upstate New York. Synecdoche, Saratoga, uh, the one Syracuse. Um, dun dun. So now we're back at the Mulroney property. Kragen kind of shades Stephanie and he's like, based on your brief description, we made this composite sh- sketch this is funny (laughs) and they show it to her in the lawyer and she like barely glances at it she's like yeah that's him she does not glance at it he passes it to her she maintains eye contact with him and then she gives it to stabler and it's like that's him so they kind of tim robinson are you sure about that are you sure about that and her lawyer is like what part of yes do you not understand and olivia goes the part about barrett college she's so tired I always feel like she's trying to like kind of do something like like she's gotten them and I'm like Olivia this is why it takes us so long to write these notes because they like are feeding us information in quips so Stabler asked Stephanie why she didn't mention she had a relationship with Dean back in college and Rumsey Rumsey tries to like slick oil everyone he's like because that wasn't the question and I'm like 
come on, man. It kind of was. It, you know it. And they're like, okay. They literally say that. Like, so Stephanie tries to speak up. She goes, I ran into him at La Bar. Is that what you want? And Rimsy goes, stop, stop. Idiot. Her mom dramatically asks Craig and she's like, are you here to make a positive ID or make a martyr out of my daughter? Because this family has had enough martyrs. And they're like, Regina. Cragen just kind of stares at her, wishing he had some Tums. Because- <laughs> it's just like, fuck. So, done, done. We are at District Attorney Adam Schiff's office. Adam Schiff is uh, the original district attorney guy that pops in and out of Law & Order proper. He's the one that's always, they'll go talk to him about things. And he's always like, he kind of does what they always do when he just like says things. And they're like, yeah, well, then we got to do this about the case. And he goes, la, 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 more things. And they're like, okay, we're going to go do the case now. <laughs> <laughs> so Craig is in there and he's meeting with Adam Schiff. And um, I had to look this up because I was like, is this yet another Mulrooney lawyer because he's being really cranky but it was the police commissioners or the police commissioner's aide okay so that makes sense they're having some like big wig meeting about this case and yeah talking about how loved the Mulroney family is and also kind of complaining about how well protected they are yeah district attorney Schiff and police commissioner do not want Craig to pursue this matter uh, they're basically being like, yeah, they like donate all this money all over the place. Apparently, Governor Mulroney was instrumental in passing like sex crimes laws in New York, which that we've heard that like so many times at this point. I don't even care anymore. Like, so Cragen tells them that they need to pursue this because SVU believes that something went left with Stephanie and Dean while they were seeing each other in college and that Stephanie basically stewed in her resentment for years before seeing Dean out that night. He believes that like she lured Dean out basically so she could kill him and like get back whatever honor. So one of the guys is like, so she necked him in the car, then ran around outside the car and shot him while he was sitting still. And I kind of thought he had a point. I did too. Cragen's like, no. Well, Cragen goes, well, this girl did cocaine one time, so she's the spawn of Satan. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't actually write down the real line, but he literally is like, "Uh, one time she possessed cocaine. So we know that she sometimes does criminal activities. And I was like. And the guy rightly goes, he goes, okay, well, that's a huge jump to murder. And the other guy's like, look, can you find a weapon, make a case? And Cragen yells, shocker, we have a case. Yeah, Adam Schiff tells him, he's like, you don't, he's like, you don't have a weapon. And so then Cragen goes, well, all due respect, sir, 90% of the murders you put in Attica were put there without a weapon. And so then Schiff goes, go talk to McCoy. (laughs) So over in McCoy's office, Cragen is still bitching about the cocaine. He's like, she used cocaine, so she is clearly lying about this murder of Dean. And Cragen's like, I've had it up to here with these people. This Ken is yelling again. Abby asks him about the composite sketch. Abby Carmichael is here in her final appearance in Law and Order SVU. And Cragen bitchly says, uh, what about it, Abby? He's a Taurus, so it takes a lot to push him, but he is kind of like off for the rest of the episode. He's like pissed. So Abby's like, oh, well, if she's lying about everything, why does the composite sketch even matter? And Cragen just ignores this and tells McCoy that he thinks she's the shooter. He's like, she was changing the radio station when this black-rimmed guy appears, but she can't remember what song is playing. She's Zooming us, Jack. Yeah, she's Zooming us. I agree with him because most, I was thinking that too, like, why wouldn't she remember what song it was? But like back then also, like, you didn't always know what a song was called on the radio. Like, so you might have just been like, I don't like this fucking song. Like, well, I don't know what this is. I'm gonna turn it off now. Yeah. It was weird. But like, also, I think that this girl just like, 
I think the best defense is just telling people you're blacked out drunk because like she could have just been like, I don't know. I remember needing to change the radio, but I don't know what song it was. I was blacked out drunk. I don't know what you want from me. I'm 33. I live in Manhattan. I don't have to drive. I know. She, she, considering she has like all this fancy counsel, she, they totally played it the wrong way. Right. And it's almost like she's too, they made her too like dumbed up like her being like oh i'm in i'm in seclusion because she like literally can't just like this would have been so easy to explain to me if she hadn't done it because i would have been like i don't know i was fucked up when then some guy yeah. got shot and i ran away because i was still fucked up i just got sober three hours ago captain cragen that's why i'm at this hospital they had to give me massive amounts of fluids because how fucked up i was on eight martinis what do you want from me sir i know i'm kind of like maybe they should fire their senile old lawyer Rumsey and get defense attorneys Brittany and Paige yeah I would have been like uh excuse me my client was fucking wasted as she should be we're just doing our nails with Stephanie we're like all right Steph here's what you're gonna do you're just gonna tell them you're fucking drunk they're already pissed off about the cocaine they know about that so we're just gonna play into that Steph it's okay you were wasted babe it happens to the best of us We'll figure it out, okay? We'll get Gloria Allred over here. We'll get the feminists on our back. Don't worry. Regina, can we have some more martinis? Thank you. Basically, Abby still isn't convinced and she mentions that like a 44 mag is like a heavy gun for someone like Stephanie to handle. McCoy interrupts and says she didn't have to pull the trigger in his McCoy way. I can't. It's like she didn't have to pull the trigger. See, I'm not going to do it. I can't do McCoy's <laughs> voice. Just look up Sam Waterston. The music starts up. They're like, and McCoy starts saying they need to prepare for damage control during the arraignment because they're going in on the Mulroney's. And Abby's like, oh, my God, for real. And Craig goes, you're going for it. And McCoy cocks his eyebrows and says, making false statements, luring a guy to his death for revenge. We'll go murder, too, and then flip her on the shooter. He's so cool. Translation, they're of the mindset now that it's possible that Stephanie hired someone to kill Dean. Which I wish they had said that a little more explicitly. Everything is like literally given to us. Like, like it's almost like if I was like, well, kid, I'm calling you to say happy birthday. But if I weren't calling you for anything else, it would be something more relevant. And you're just like, are, are you calling to say happy birthday? Is it my birthday? <laughs> what? <Yeah. laughs> I feel like everything in this episode is fed to us like piecemeal. And then it's like, wait, what? So done, done. Court, Stephanie's being arraigned. Rumsey is there, senile old ass Rumsey. Stephanie like makes eye contact with her mother and her mom gives her a chin up gesture. So Stephanie's kind of like, okay. And Rumsey says she pleads not guilty. Uh, the judge asks about bail and McCoy says they've asked, they're asking for her to be remanded. Apparently that her family issued a request for an expedited passport yesterday. I think they're fucking slick. And obviously, she has unlimited financial resources. The judge, who has some sort of red eye issue that day, is like, we know that. And at first, I thought he was against them. I agree. But then he pulls an Uno reverse uh, because Rumsey goes, your honor, this is incredible that they would suggest that she's a flight risk, even though they expedited a passport. And she's like super wealthy and people do this all the time. And the judge says, I agree. Dot, dot, dot. It is incredible. Dot, dot, dot. That this young woman would lower the standards by which she was raised. Oh, yeah. He basically is like, oh, she's going to try to gallivant around Europe. Not on my watch. Bangs his little gavel. He's like, bail denied. She's remanded. I don't yep. know if that's the right way to say that in the Queen's English, but. 
Uh, so outside the courthouse, done, done. This, this is like, this randomly amused me. Like random scenes in this one amuse me. Like we just got a pack of reporters that are like facelessly like always in the back of their heads. And they run up to Rumsey and Regina. Regina says that she thinks it's all ghastly and ridiculous. And Rumsey says that the judge's ruling was an error in judgment. And that he expects that Stephanie will be released in time for their annual upcoming family reunion in Bermuda. So a journalist asks if the judge's political affiliations could have anything to do with this because the judge is conservative and the Mulroney family is liberal. And Rumney's like, oh, gee, I don't know, possibly. But he's totally like gearing up to say yes. So the press turn to McCoy and they're like, do you want to comment on this? And he goes, I'm sorry, what? Like he barks at them. It's hysterical. Dun, dun. Dun, dun. We're back at the station. Everyone is on their phone. And it's one of those shots where we go from cop to cop. And Jeffries gets off her call, and there's another shooting. A man in a car, gunshot wound to the back of his head, pants down. It literally just happened. Like, they're on the phone trying to trace down, like, guns. They're like, hello, gun store. Do you have this type of gun or bullets? And then Monique, like, literally just turns and goes, there was just a shooting at the 1-7, and it was a Magnum 44. So immediately I'm thinking, okay, so the Mulroney's coordinated a second shooting, so it looked like a spree or serial killer. We'll see. We'll see. That might not be the Occam's razor. (laughs) Dun, dun. Crime scene. So everyone responds. Literally everybody is there. (laughs) Oh, yeah. At first I wrote Benson and Stabler, and then I'm like, oh, shit, Munchies are here, too. Yeah, Munchies is there. I think Craig is there, too. Everyone showed up. Uh, They're bored. So the CSU tech says that there was a bullet lodged in the vanity mirror, which was shattered. Um, And for some reason, and by some reason, I mean no reason at all. Munch says, Vanity, thy name is woman. And Jeffries and Benson are like, uh, first of all, you quoted it wrong. And second of all, you're a fucking misogynist. Well, the victim's name is Stanley Brecker. Uh, and Olivia's like, oh, is that his wife over there? And the cop's like, different last name. He's like, oh, she's got like a weird name like Catfish. And he's like, oh, no, it's Katish. Jeffries is like, you fucking idiot. So she approaches her and she's like, Miss Katish, how are you doing? She's like, mm, not that hot. And she's wearing this gold jacket that I feel like they give to women at this time to make them look cheap. Like if you watch a a, a show or movie from this time and they're trying to be like, this chick's a slut. They put her in like a shiny gold type coat. Yeah, they were trying really hard to make this girl. They're like, oh, look, she's clearly a lady of the night. But to me, she was just every woman that's ever been on the show at this point. She kind of looks like Sharona Fleming from Monk. Oh, a little bit. I just needed to, you know, get a monk reference in there. I never thought I'd be part of something like this. And they go, what do you mean like this? And she kind of gets all very obviously awkward and nervous. She goes, you know, all of this. And then she said the attack occurred while she was filleting Mr. Brecker. So Jeffries is like, all right, so if you're blowing him, this means you didn't get a good look at him. And she's like, well, I remember his eyes. They were bright and shiny with Buddy Holly glasses. Like a psychotic nerd. Stabler's like, that's a good description. What do yeah. you do for work? Did she say she auditioned for a picnic? Yeah, she did. She said she auditioned. She was like, I'm a model and I do a little acting. I auditioned for picnic recently. And we're like, oh. I had no idea what that was. I was like, you know, you can just go on those, right? You don't really need to audition to go on a picnic. And she throws in that she met Stanley at a bar and that he seemed really nice. So dun dun. Stanley Brecker's place. BNS are there with Brecker's widow, and she's asking if it was a random carjacking. And Benson and Stabler play dumb, and they say that they're not sure. 
So then Mrs. Brecker goes, I never thought it would happen like this. I always expected it would be a heart attack or a stroke from the pressures of work. And then she goes on this little rant, which is important to the episode, but it seen, comes off as very unprompted, where she's like, he works in the garment business. That is so stressful. And I'm like, oh my God, I've never heard that. She's like, you know, all those goons that show up and threaten you when you work in the garment business and all the threats that he'd get. And I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> he was always being shaken down by some goons for protection money. And I put in my notes, literally, what? <laughs> your, your husband was in the mafia. Yeah. Right? Or, or at least affiliated, like at least they approached him and said, which I've heard happens, they walk up to businesses and they go, hey, we're going to do stuff around here and you're going to be okay with that. And if you say no, then they beat you up. Is the garment business a well-known mob front? I don't know if it's a front, but I think it's easy to launder money through those businesses because I don't think they're heavily audited because it's like, who really wants to look into textiles, you know? like Yeah, that's true. But dun-dun, back to the bullpen. Jeffries tells Cragen that CSU is still waiting on the ballistics to confirm if the bullet found in Brecker's car matches the one that was found in Dean's car. Cragen's all freaked out that it's taking so long because basically it's like a paternity test. He needs to know if Stephanie did this or not. Because <laughs> he's in big trouble if she didn't. Munch is like, maybe it was a copycat, which is such an un-Munch-like thing to say. He's our conspiracy theorist queen. So B&S walk in and they confirm that Brecker's wife is basically not guilty, they said that she was bitter, but not angry. I'm like, she didn't even sound bitter. She just sounded concerned. And Cragen's like, great, we're looking for a son of Sam. Meanwhile, there's a pane of broken glass in a window behind Cragen. I'm like, are they poor? Why don't they get that fixed? Oh, I wonder if that was like an issue with the set in real life. Meanwhile, Briscoe Jr. and Helen Caddish are basically snuggling as they do some light police work. Yeah, they're making a composite sketch of the man that Helen saw while she was actively giving oral to a man, apparently. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, Briscoe is kind of like, their faces are like right next to each other. And little Briscoe is saying that he likes to play around on the composite program and he likes to like make features of his perfect woman. And I'm like, ew. That's why he's not around much longer. He got caught doing that. And they're like, that's not what this software is for, buddy. So that's how he gets booted out. I like how they're just booting out all the cute young men. They're like, get out of here, Cassidy. You cry too much. Get out of here, Briscoe. I mean, you're doing something actually kind of disrespectful. <laughs> Helen does a few tweaks. You know, they're looking at like a face of a guy who basically looks like the Zodiac Killer. And she's like, oh, his hair was slicked back a little. Oh, his eyes were a little bit more sparkly. And then finally they get the results. And it's basically the Zodiac Killer. Like, go oh, yeah. look at a composite of the Zodiac Killer, who, by the way, they never found in case you didn't know that. Um, but that's who it looks like. Dun, dun. Dun, dun. So Jeffries enters, ever helpful. And she has a list of shootings committed with a 44 Magnum over the last 30 years. There were 319 in total, 12 were at close range, three involved victims in parked cars, and there were four open cases dating back six years ago. One of them, one of them was in the 2-7, and the others were all slugs from the same gun. I kid you not, that was all information. The only thing that we have to remember is that the three from the two seven all were from the same gun. I wrote all that down and then I was like, why? It was this is what we have to deal with. Literally, like I know in real life this would be a thing, but we didn't need to know it. 
So Cragen calls Big Briscoe, like as so Jeffries gets done telling him all this, and then Cragen gets on the phone like mid sentence, and he calls Lenny Briscoe, and he asks about a case from 1993 or 1994 wherein they investigated an unsolved murder of a man who was whacked in a car with a 44. Dun dun. Briscoe and Green are here, which is very exciting. Honestly, I know this scene took a few minutes, and I just wrote down that they basically talk about finding a body and that. They have a description of the shooter, and he's a man with black glasses, like Buddy Holly. Yep. He looks just like Buddy Holly. Uh-oh, and he's carrying a 44. Oh, my God. That was good. Thank you. <laughs> they say some other shit, but literally none of it matters. Apparently, it was cold that day, and they're like, and there was a very annoying homeless woman. I'm like, I'm sorry that some woman being affected by mental health issues, potentially, or substance misuse bothered you on your dumb job you fuckers the one piece of information which is sort of a thing but not really but also i have questions was that there was exactly one witness and her name was jill templeton dun 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 craigan's office so jeffries has more information of course jeffries is just like walking in she goes i got more stuff don't fire me at the end of the season also craigan has a cot with piles of blankets and a hat on top of it does he fucking live Brittany, here thank god you are here detective <laughs> porter because once again i wasn't paying attention i'm in here i'm like do you sleep here is everything okay at home do you have a home what is going on much like one of the friggin mulrooney sons my wife died over a fucking bog craigan sighs and takes out his handle of vodka and i'm like oh no crap he's gonna corner me with a store and he hands it to me i'm like do I have to drink all of this? And he's like, yes. So I'm like glugging the vodka as he tells me a story that has nothing to do with the case, but then turns around and it does. And I'm like, why did I have to mention the cot? <laughs> and then the next day when you come to work, he's going to be mean to you while you're hungover because he always does that. He makes people drink and then he like is mean to them the next day or fires them. So Jeffries comes in and goes, is it bedtime? <laughs> I was like, is this to do with this guy? Whatever. No, he's just waiting for the other shoe to drop. Jeffrey says that the ballistics match the bullet from Brecker's car to the one in Dean's car, meaning Stephanie couldn't have done it because she was in jail without bail. She was on remand. But I was able to track down a gun store in Jersey that sells black talents or sold black talents because it can't be sold anymore. The owner of the store said that five years ago, there was a customer with black glasses that he remembers. And I was like, so my parting note on this was, thank God this crime didn't happen between the years 2010 and 2018 when those glasses made a huge resurgence in the hipster community. Oh, yeah. Here, it's kind of like a weird thing. But nowadays, not nowadays, in that time period, that would have been hella common. Dun dun. So we're at the gun store in Jersey. The owner says that five years ago, there was a guy in the store who he normally wouldn't have remembered or paid attention to, but then he started to piss me off. And then Munch asks if it was because the guy denounced John British society as being soft on Y2K. And the guy just ignores this because, shut up. Yeah, it's not the time, but he says apparently the guy was running around dry-firing the hunting rifles. He was just like, yeah, fucking around with the guns. Uh, So he was like, you need to buy something or get out. And so the guy said that he wanted to buy some cop killers before they went off the market. Jeffries asks the owner for a list of sales of the Black Talons. And the owner tries to tell her no because he doesn't believe in police interference. And then she's like, yeah, me either. But here's a court order. So because she's Liv like Olivia, here. but like better because she already has it. And she like taps him on the shoulder with it. So then for all of his hemming and hawing, he has a box sitting right behind him and he picks it up. 
passes it to her, and directly on the top is a receipt for a man named Arthur Pruitt who bought three boxes of black talons in December 1994. Thank God. That's a serial killer name if I've ever heard it. Yeah, oh, I know. No, it's true. Arthur Pruitt. Dun, dun. So Benson gets off the phone with people who she calls the Phoebes. So they were in Vegas. Um, Pruitt was apparently in jail for having over 100 credit cards that he was using at a bingo casino. (laughs) I guess this guy just likes forgeries and cons. But Pruitt was released five months ago, and he told his his parole officer that his mother was dying. So then he went to New York, and he left a forwarding address for a flop house in Chinatown. Cragen calls the 2-7 so they can all go arrest him as friends. Yeah, done, done. So we go to the, I don't, I don't like this term, the flop house, which I, know, I believe is just, a homeless shelter. It just sounds disrespectful. Rude. So yeah, literally everyone, all the besties get together. Jeffries asks the lady at the desk where they can find a man named Pruitt, and the woman points, because again, conveniently, she points right behind all of them. And there's a sketchy little man sitting on a bench, just smoking a cigarette, like not wearing glasses. He's just sitting there smoking, watching them. So the whole squad rolls up on him and Olivia's like, are you Arthur Pruitt? And he takes a drag from his cigarette and says, who are you? With just smoke just pouring from his mouth. Well, Benson's like, I'm Detective Benson. And he goes, can I see some ID? So she gets out like her badge or whatever. And she hands it to him. And when she does, Pruitt takes out a very big, they're like the size of a Gigantic. whole Gigantic. They're huge. They're fucking bifocals. These are comically large. And he puts them on to take a look. And then he gives her a really creepy smile and he's like, ooh, I'm the man you're looking for. So the gang busts into his room and inside they find a wall covered in newspaper clippings of the crimes. Done, done. So now we're in the lineup room. Helen's in there and she's looking at the lineup. She immediately identifies Pruitt. Stabler asks if she's sure. And Helen says, yes, it was dark, but not that dark. I'll remember him to the day I die. That face, those glasses. And then Stabler cuts her off and goes, it's not an audition, Miss Cadditch. A simple yes or no will do. Um, let Helen live. I know. She, she just like lived through a traumatic experience of some guy she was hooking up with having his head blown off. So if she wants to, I don't know, wax poetic while she's identifying the killer, let her be. Right. And what is, what is she doing that is literally any different from how all of these assholes in the show that we've had to sit through for 16 weeks overacting actually so she turns to him kind of smirks and goes and the winner is number three is that good enough for you and he's like okay you can go now so yeah she leaves and then they bring in jill templeton the witness from 1994 from that case that briscoe was handling in 1994 uh she walks in and they're like okay take your time i know it's been a while and she goes number three which is pruitt and they're like are you sure and she's like oh yeah so i thought that that was a really excellent two seconds of acting Oh, yeah. Jill Templeton, you killed it, girl. So then right after she leaves, they bring in the fragile Stephanie Mulrooney, who at this point I am OK with, I guess. And she also immediately identifies Pruitt. And Cragen's like, <laughs> he's like popping Tums furiously. Oh, he's going to die in like two. Not really, guys. Sorry, I'm not wishing. I just mean like uh, this would be me. I'd be like, oh, my God, I'm literally dead. <laughs> so now we're outside the interrogation room and we're basically going to see our three different sets of detectives go at Pruitt and it's all very bad. I was going to say there's no reason for any of this to be happening. 
So first up are Eddie and Lenny. And Eddie's like trying to butter up Arthur by telling him how gross his crime scene was. I wasn't there during the original case, but when I saw your crime scene photos, he's got his hands like over his mouth, kind of like, oh, he goes, I almost made me lose my lunch. Which was a tuna sandwich. It was really. And then Lenny, I didn't write down what he said. He basically turns to him and goes, you know, it was a cold day out there on those docks. Me and my old partner, Logan, we would just walk around for days and smell that smell. You know what smell I mean? And the guy's like, no, what smell? <laughs> and Lenny goes, death. <laughs> so this this wonderful interrogation somehow doesn't work. Cut to the fire Jesus. signs are here. My God. <laughs> this absolute spectacle. Munch is just screaming at Arthur, and I don't really know what to say, but he just screams at him. Jeffries is like, easy, easy, because she's decided to be good cop. And Munch goes, I'm going to kill this guy myself. And Arthur's like, is this legal? He goes, I'm going to get you, little reptilian geek. And Pruitt says, I get it, bad cop. And Munch goes, you bet your ass it is. And then Jeffries is literally going, come on, John, stop it. It's not worth it, John. And then he's literally in Pruitt's face and he's going, I'm going to Mike Tyson you, you bastard. And he's just whispering, I'm going to kill you. Shockingly, this doesn't work either. Unhinged. Unhinged behavior. So Stabler goes for more of a buddy-buddy approach where he's like, I'm the calm, normal one. He's like, well, let's talk about the working stiff Dean Woodruff. Stabler's like, so you're waiting in the tunnel. And Arthur's like, well, you have a wild imagination. And Stabler's like, well, listen, we have those black talons. And Arthur's like, so I'm the only guy in New York that has these black talons. And Stabler holds up three fingers in Arthur's face. And at first I thought he was like saying he had like three bullets. I was like, what? He's like, well, we have three witnesses. And Arthur's like, well, it was pitch black. The windows were fogging up because they were inside getting busy. And Stabler's like, okay, so you were there. And Arthur's like, well, no, no, I just have a bit of imagination. And Stabler's like, hmm, but those three witnesses. And then they try some like flattery. What is this interrogation? It is not best practices. I think it is supposed to be based on the Zodiac Killer where they're trying to like flatter his ego and like get him to be like, oh, you were like, you know, it was so professional, so clean. And Liv just chimes in. It was awesome. Like from the corner. <laughs> <laughs> and then I was like, this might, this one might actually work on me. Then being like, you did such a good job. I'd be like, oh, I did. Tell me. And the stabler's like, it was so clean, so professional. He goes, and then you left the girl alone. That was, and then he kind of pauses and Pruitt just goes, gentlemanly. Stabler's like, exactly. You're a gentleman of the old school. <laughs> that was so funny. A gentleman of the old school. And he looks at them and he goes, so oh, and Stabler goes, so that's a yes. To which Pruitt responds, under coercion. That's a yes. And I'm like, is that an, I guess that's enough. I, I guess They have no lawyers watching this, so I guess it doesn't fucking matter. Yeah. So uh, outside, Cragen translates for us and he confirms that basically that is enough for a confession to Dean Woodruff's murder. Munch questions why Pruitt would have flopped so easily after stonewalling them for hours. He's like, uh, I literally threatened to Mike Tyson this man and he didn't budge. Why now? I think Munch is just mad that he didn't get him. So Craig's tired. He's tired. And he's literally like, ah, damn if I know, John. Just truly being like, I don't fucking know. Dun, dun. Dun, dun. We're back with the bitchy Emmy. Yeah, we're back with her. She says that Brecker's shooting was very similar to Dean's shooting, except for one thing. And she shows Munch pictures of Brecker, the second victim, the, you know, guy with Helen's body. And she goes, what do you see? Oh, my gosh. 
So Munch goes, a beautiful woman who hasn't seen the inside of a nice restaurant in months. So aggressive. Also, first of all, this bitch goes to the opera. You want to tell me she hasn't seen the inside of a nice restaurant in month? I'm sure she's seen one in the last day. That was a very rude. Okay, I know what you were trying to do. Don't tell a woman that she looks like she hasn't been inside of a nice restaurant in a few months because you're even if you preface it with beautiful, you're basically telling her she looks like shit. Yeah, and she's like, I see ruptured blood vessels. So basically, did she say he has bruises that are several weeks old or are these? Yep. So she was showing him pictures of Brecker's body and he's got these big bruises on his sides and stuff like his like gut. And she says that these are a couple of weeks old. Munch is like, well, how do you think he got them? And she says that guessing from how they look, she said it was a fist fight. And Munch is like, what? So like fist to cuffs. And she goes, no, someone beat the crap out of him. And so then right after that, Munch ignores that little detail and goes, when are you going to go to dinner with me? And she says, not while I still have the ability to feed myself. Which again, I thought was kind of mean. Like Munch looks really sad and I feel bad for him in that I don't want to sympathize with poor male behavior, but I feel like he just doesn't know what he's doing wrong. And I want to sit him down and tell him his problem. Making someone feel like you would rather die than eat with them is just inappropriate. And lady, I'm sorry. I know he basically told you you look like you need to get laid, but that response tells me you do. Since you and I have been so against her, I'm like, Munch, not her. I know. This was like new. I'm like, I get it. Like, you're kind of like scraping the bottom of the barrel here. But like, don't. She's so mean. Dun, dun. Dun, dun. So now we're back at Adam Schiff's office. Schiff is basically just super embarrassed by all this because the Mulroneys <laughs> are super rich <laughs> and pissed off. Um, and Cragen tells him that he's not, he doesn't think it was a wild goose chase. He kind of implies this tone that he thinks they're on to something. Um, and Schiff basically wants Cragen to apologize to the Mulroneys and Cragen doesn't want to. So the Mulroneys come in and With Schiff tells them, oh, Rumsey's here too. And Schiff tells them that all the charges have been dropped. And Regina's like, well, that's just great. God knows we'll always be fodder for the tabloids. And Cragen apologizes to Stephanie. She's like, thanks, that's fine. Regina says to Captain Cragen, because he's like, I extend my deepest and sincerest apologies to you. And she goes, thank you, Captain. You seem like a nice man. (laughs) (laughs) Which is really nice considering, which we're about to find out some stuff. But Mm. honestly, if... They really did drag that family through that for nothing. That would be a nice response. But we're about to find out maybe that's not the case. Yeah, I think there's a reason why they're a little bit chipper about this. They're not more angry, you know. So Cragen walks outside and Munch runs up to him and he's like, listen, the Emmy has some doubts about Brecker. Someone beat him up before he died. So he goes on this rant that's... It's not English. He thinks that all the people in the garment business are run up against the mob, essentially, because he's got some information about that. So the Mulroney family used mob connections to mimic a copycat crime to pull attention away from Stephanie's crime. Yes. So what it sounds like is because he's really guys, I kid you not, like he's not speaking. He's basically speaking in euphemisms to Cragen because I think he's now supposed to be like paranoid munch, like big governments after him. So he's basically implying that the Mulroney's, yes, hired somebody to basically I... It sounds like get Brecker to agree to go to this prostitute or maybe Lord like Helen was like supposed to be a lord to get Brecker in a car. But but he doesn't seem to believe that Brecker would actually do that because he was a family man. Very convoluted. 
Yeah. Um, and, and Cragen's just exhausted at this point. So he kind of, he, he picks up what Munch is putting down that essentially he believes that Stephanie Mulroney did kill Dean somehow, or at least organize a killing. She had him killed somehow. And the Mulroneys are now in the process of like a massive cover up just to like get her off the hook. And so Cragen's like, basically tell it to someone else, Munch. And he walks away. There's nothing we can do about this. And Munch yells, people like the Mulroneys, they can turn the world on with their smiles. They'll stop at nothing to get what they want. Come on, Cap, you gotta believe me. And Cragen just kind of gives this shrug as he's walking away like, nothing I can do. Executive producer, Dick Wolf. So, <laughs> so um, my biggest thing was, we, like we discussed earlier, we'd never find out why Dean was hoarding random seashells and cocktail napkins. So like I said, this is a two-parter and there is a second part. So I'm probably going to sound really stupid once I watch part two. But so she ran into him at a bar and then somehow got a gunman to show up at the car and shoot him and then had to cover it up. I, why the fuck did she need to be? If she was going to kill him, why the fuck did she need to be there in the first place? Did Dean, do we think Dean really did assault Stephanie or do we think that this is some bizarre entitlement where maybe she was slighted? I mean, we don't know. We have to find out. But do we think that really happened? Because they're so vague the whole time. I love a petty queen and I love the idea of someone who's that mad 10 years later. Not enough to kill somebody. That's wrong. Right. Sounds crazy. But that's kind of wild to some guy basically slept with you and blew you off and then 10 years ago you go through this whole rigmarole to kill him right no agree so that's what that was kind of I was like I so yeah I think what we're supposed to and I guess we'll again we'll see in the next episode well we'll see when we watch the law and order proper episode about this I'm of the belief that she has been like stalking Dean potentially not stalking but you know she would have had to in order to know to go to lay bar and Right. That all seems too convenient. So I don't believe that it was a convenient like she saw him out and like had this reaction and was carrying around a 44. I think that she hired someone to do it. So do we think that guy. So now I'm wondering how much of this is a cover up or not. I guess we're going to find out. But it's like, is Pruitt really the killer from 94? Was the gun shop owner in on it? It's just like, okay, when you start to believe that it is a cover-up, then it just is like, oh, it doesn't make sense as a cover-up. Right. There's so many caveats. But it seems be- like it's supposed to be? I think it's supposed to be. Now, again, because I was fully, until Munch had the little conspiracy. Now, I did think it was a little strange that they were able to, like, you know, oh, my God, like, there's another guy killing somebody while Stephanie's in jail. But then because they found the guy... And he had this whole backstory of like wanting recognition. So that's what, yeah, you're right. It's like when you start to dig into the details of the cover up, this is probably why so many things get covered up successfully because people like us go, oh my God, no, that can't be, that's so, oh my God, how could that possibly be true? Because that would be so many people too involved. Yeah. It's like, did they find Pruitt, know he was the serial killer from 94 and go, hey, we're going to hire you to like serial kill two more people. I bet we're going to watch this second fucking episode and there's going to be <laughs> no answers. 
No. Oh, yeah. No, I bet that it's going to be like stupid. Like I can't I actually can't wait. So next week we are going to do the Law and Order episode. So this is Law and Order proper season 10. I want to say episode 15, also called Entitled, and we will talk about part two of this episode. We're not going to do a full recap like we normally do of an episode, partly due to time constraints, also partly due, I think it would just be complicated to be all these new people and would have to backstory. Yeah. And then we're going to spend a little time doing that. And then we're going to do like a best of Dean Cassidy. Dean Cassidy. We're going to do a best of Brian Cassidy. And then the next week, um, I'm away, so we're going to be off. And then we will return with uh, episode 16, 17, whatever's next. Yeah, the one after that. (laughs) Well, happy Friday. Well, okay. Well, yeah, happy Friday because today's Friday. So happy Friday, Brittany. And happy. Thank you. Hopefully Tuesday, unless something happens. (laughs) (laughs) No promises. No, I don't know. Now I'm saying that. But. All right. Well, nice talking to you guys. Oh, yeah. Bye. Bye.